Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. Hey, Rod. Hi. Hello. 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 Let me mute everybody. That sounded like interference almost, didn't it? That's sort of peculiar. Okay, so we're picking up with our reading of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and if you remember, the first three uh, steps of the ladder have to do with the break of the world, and we're coming to the end of the first step on renunciation, and then we'll be moving into detachment. And uh, where we pick up this evening, John is talking about the beginning of the spiritual life for us and how we are to enter into it with the kind of zeal and fervor, that the, that the beginning uh, sort of points us to what things will look like at the end. To have a strong beginning is essential in his mind, that we would enter into the spiritual life, not half-heartedly or with half measures, but to enter into it fully, reflective of what we've been given in Christ. So our response should be complete and full as well. And so tonight we're picking up with number 24 on page 59 of the text, if you're following along. He begins by writing, offer to Christ the labors of your youth, And in your old age, you will rejoice in the wealth of dispassion. What is gathered in youth nourishes and comforts those who have grown feeble in old age. In your youth, let us, in our youth, let us labor ardently and let us run vigilantly, for the hour of death is unknown. We have very evil, dangerous, cunning, and unscrupulous foes who hold fire in their hands and try to burn the temple of God with the flame that is in it. These foes are strong. They never sleep. They are incorporeal and invisible. Let no one, when he is young, listen to the enemies, the demons, when they say to him, do not wear out your flesh, lest you make it sick and weak. For you will scarcely find anyone, especially in the present generation, who is determined to mortify his flesh, although he might deprive himself of many pleasant dishes. The aim of this demon is to make our very entrance into the stadium lax and negligent, and then make the end correspond to the beginning. And so a few paragraphs back, uh, he had emphasized that uh, no one likes to go up against a plucky fighter, that uh, we should enter into the arena, as it were, uh, uh, fully engaged in the spiritual battle and fearless, knowing what God has given us, and the protection that we have both through his grace, but our guardian angels, the angels as a whole, and the intercession of the saints. And similarly here, he tells us in our youth in particular, uh, not to be timid in the spiritual battle or in the ascetic life, not to be indiscriminate and undiscerning. You know, certainly would, we would follow the counsel of a spiritual director and elder in terms of our embrace of the ascetical practices so that we don't fall into what we saw in the Ericatinos on Monday, uh, the dangers of extremes in the ascetical life that can likewise lead to delusion and lead to great falls for us. And so we are to be measured in our practice, uh, but not timid and not half-hearted in our embrace of them. 
and uh, not to pamper the body. St. Philip Neri used to say, heaven is not for cowards. And I think he had the same thing in mind, you know, a realization that the spiritual life is not something that is easy and that is going to require all of us in the sense that we invest ourselves completely and that we are willing uh, to mortify ourselves on multiple levels in order that we might overcome the passions, the, the bodily uh, desires that often will guide us into sin, as well as mortifying uh, those passions that are more spiritual. Uh, the first is as necessary as the second, that we mortify the, the flesh in order to overcome uh, the more physical, sensible passions, if you will, uh, in order that we might then gain strength of will uh, in, to struggle with the things that are far more difficult, which is mortifying the intellect, reason, uh, humbling ourselves uh, before God. And, uh, and so you know, all of this, he says, uh, that brings about an old age, the one great goal, which is dispassion. And often it's been described as a... Uh, uh, passionless passion, this desire for God that is not distorted by uh, the bodily passions or those that have been affected by sin, that we are, our desire has been purified, that we long for God uh, in an unmeasured way, and, uh, but also in a way that is not uh, alloyed with anything uh, within this world that would diminish it. And uh, so we're to be strong, uh, so as to end strong. And uh, which I, I think is a pretty important principle. You know, again, if we enter into the spiritual battle in a lukewarm fashion, especially in our youth, and if we pamper our bodies and, and fail to mortify ourselves, it's unlikely as we age and become more and more set in our ways. And as certain passions have a greater grip on us, that we are going to be able to engage in the mortification that we could as a youth. That, uh, you know, the capacity to fast or uh, to keep vigils, certainly when one is younger, one might have a greater ability to do that than when one is older. And uh, so not to waste our youth uh, in the sense of failing to exercise ourselves in, in the spiritual life. and. Uh, you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, as an athlete, uh, a person can move away even from the sport for a period of time. If you're an athlete in your youth, uh, even say if you stepped away from athletic training for a period of time, it's much easier to, to step back into it, uh, that the body responds in a different way, that you know what the training consists of and uh, what discipline is necessary. Uh, whereas if you've never been engaged in sports at all uh, and never sort of developed this, you know, part of one, yourself, then it becomes certainly much more difficult uh, uh, when, you're, when you're older. You know, if you're, you've never exercised and never utilized your muscles very much, uh, certainly it becomes harder as one gets older. And so in the spiritual battle, uh, we want our zeal for God and our desire for him to lead us on. And uh, it, you remember, I think in a couple of groups ago, I can't remember which it was, that a, a bishop telling his young priest, you know, not to be so worried about burning oneself out that you never catch on fire. And that is all often the voice of prudence uh, that veils itself, or maybe I should say it this way, it's the voice of courage that veils, lack of courage, that it veils itself as prudence, that we never enter into the spiritual battle fully, and we use prudence to tell ourselves, you don't want to make yourself too weak, you don't want to make yourself sick by, by fasting and engaging in these practices. And so we avoid stretching ourselves in that regard, and so never know the fruit of it. And I think the, the place where we see this the most in the West is in regards to fasting, uh, that we have food in such abundance, 
And often when people come from abroad, from other countries, they often go into a kind of shock when they walk into an American grocery store by the sheer abundance of food that is on the shelves and or by the portions that are given at meals that are typically inhuman <laughs> in terms of, you know, our, we force ourselves and to, to do it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we go to extremes in that regard and they've gotten bigger and bigger over the course of years. And so, and we have, you know, a, a whole medical community that tells us, well, you should really eat multiple times a day. So not such big meals, but eat like six times a day, small meals. And so people are basically grazing all day long. And so their body is involved in the digestion of food on a sort of constant level. And so there's no fasting that's ever taking place. And with the relaxation of, you know, certainly the fasting disciplines in the, the Latin Rite Church, uh, often people are completely uh, uh, ignorant in terms of the, the ways and the practices of fasting, simply not out of, uh, you know, fault on their own, but they've never been exposed to it, never been taught anything about it. And because the church only requires fasting on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and, and they make that fast, two small meals and one regular meal, it's really not changing people's practice at all from really the day-to-day the -day life, let alone allowing a practice to become regular and a regular part of the spiritual life uh, in order to be able to see the, the fruit of it, in particular, the struggle with the passions. So all in, you know, all in all, I think listening to what John is saying here is that part of our entering into the spiritual battle with courage is not just with the mind, but really investing our, our whole self in the struggle. Uh, the way that we worship, the way that we pray, the ascetical practices that we embrace, again, from fasting to, to vigils, sleeping on the floor, what, whatever it might mean in terms of, you know, disciplining the body, disciplining the amount that we sleep uh, to regain this for ourselves as an essential part of this spiritual life. And uh, because other, otherwise, when we try to embrace it, and we try to take up, say, we just came out of Lent. I think for most Western Christians, it can be a, a rather deflating 40 days because inevitably after the first week, those disciplines fall away. You know, I've already busted my commitment for, I've already broken my commitment for, for Lent. And it's part of the reason for that is because we are untrained in the disciplines from the beginning. We have not been trained in our youth. And uh, I remember the group laughing here when I read a little something from St. John Chrysostom that said that children should be exposed to the practice of vigils, that you would get them up, that the, the parents would get up in the middle of the night to pray and uh, to have that as a regular practice of their spiritual life. But they would do this with the children. The children might get up and say a prayer and go right back to bed. But very early in their life that they would be exposed to this spiritual practice that throughout the course of their life would deepen and grow and they would see the fruit of it. But I think in, if one is not exposed at an early age to that, uh, once you're sort of immersed in the culture, that's going to be the formative uh, force in, in your life, not the ascetical tradition of the church. Ren. This is why we should never resent those who enter the vineyard at the ninth hour, so to speak. There are so many great things to be gained by spending one's youth and whole life laboring for Christ. That's right, that there's a joy and freedom that comes through. Uh, not only obedience, as we talked about in the Evercatinos, that there's a kind of freedom and joy that we experience through our being obedience to the commandments, because it draws us into a deeper intimacy with God. But such is true in the ascetical life, that we often look at it as negative, and uh, uh, you know, this kind of brutalizing of the body or hatred of the body, 
Whereas the disciplining of, of the body in this way actually brings spiritual fruit that brings a kind of peace of mind and heart and joy. And I've mentioned before in the past, a book by Adelbert de Vogue, a Benedictine who's since passed away called To Love Fasting. And it was with him that I first was exposed to, to this understanding of it, that to, to look at spiritual disciplines, not as we typically think of disciplines, as harsh, as punishing, as making our life miserable, but rather as something that produces this fruit of joy, that we know the joy of the deepening of prayer that takes place through the ascetical life and the deepening of intimacies. So Climacus will say it very clearly. If one has been practicing the ascetical life for 20 years and does not experience this joy of the kingdom, then on some level they're, they're to be pitied because they've been engaging in the discipline, uh, lacking something, a kind of clarity about what the end of their ascetical practices is to be. And uh, if, it, if it is focused upon the self, for example, it's never going to bring one joy because one might have this view of oneself as being disciplined or being uh, you know, a practicing uh, Christian, uh, but if it's not focused upon God and seeking intimacy with God, then it's not going to bear fruit for us. Robin Greco. Does St. John have any of these spiritual actions for those who are not well in body, or does he not get into that? Thank you. Um, Yes, you know, he's certainly going to talk about many different things, and he already did in some measure when he directed his attention. I think we looked at this last week when he directed his attention for a moment at those who aren't living the monastic life. So even though he's writing for monks, he dedicates uh, a paragraph or so to those who are living within the world. And basically, he lays out before them, you know, main, you know, seek constancy in prayer, engage in the sacramental life, uh, you know, treat others with charity, you know, in terms of uh, not only your interactions, but caring for those in need. So basically, living out the gospel demands to love that within all of that is this path to sanctity. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom if you've lived this and lived it fully. And so, you know, sometimes when a person isn't able to fast in body, maybe because of illness, actually to embrace that illness uh, as something that providentially uh, comes to us and to embrace it, you know, with a kind of spirit of gratitude or to be able to offer it to God has greater value uh, than a practice of fasting that is embraced simply by our will. You know, that we take up fasting because we know that it's a positive discipline for us, but to embrace a kind of the discipline of the body that is very difficult, dealing with illness or chronic pain on a day-to-day -day basis. And to pray in the midst of that to God bears enormous spiritual fruit. And so not, you know, one should not be concerned if one isn't able to fast rigorously, because it's certainly not the only spiritual discipline. Uh, Andrea and Anthony. I've always been troubled by devotions to saints that self-mutilate and that is exalted as proof of their holiness, right? Example, St. Rose of Lima, a saint from my birth city. What you said about having the right balance between disciplining the body and torturing the body struck a chord with me. What are we to make of these saints? Uh, that their zeal uh, lacked measure. And it's interesting when you read the life of, say, St. John Vianney, uh, the patron of parish priest, was extremely disciplined uh, in his life and his fasting. I think there's a period of like six years where he ate one potato a day. And so he'd boil the potatoes at the beginning of the week. So you can imagine what that last potato at the end of the week <laughs> looked, looked like and tasted like. But uh, he acknowledged openly you know, in his old age, 
that he was excessive in his youth and his disciplines. Not that there wasn't a value to them, but he recognized that there, he was not guided there. And I think part of it was that he was on his own as well. Uh, that he was in this little town by himself serving as parish priest, uh, had great zeal for the Lord and uh, great discipline in his life of prayer, and uh, also was afflicted in his battle with the evil one too, very much like Padre Pio in that regard too. Uh, but he freely acknowledged that, yes, you know, that he should have been more restrained because he, the, you know, the effects on his body in his old age took, took, its, took their toll. And so you're right, you know, I think when we read the lives of the saints, we have to read them with a critical eye and acknowledging that there can be a lack of measure there. And I think that's why following the guidance of the saints like Climacus or Cassian uh, is very important uh, because the best of the teachers counsel uh, this kind of measure, avoiding the extremes at either end, either in terms of neglect of discipline or going to extremes in that discipline. And uh, you're right, though, sometimes I think some saints are held up because of those extremes. And we have a tendency to be attracted at times to the extraordinary. And, you know, Jesus, you know, warns us about this in the gospel, you know, people looking for signs, you know, that there is this tendency that we have as human beings, we want to be engaged or wild by power. And so a kind of spiritual power, you know, somebody who has this capacity to discipline themselves in these extraordinary ways uh, speaks to the imagination, I think, for those who have a religious identity. And so I think that's why a lot of times these uh, individuals stand out for us, but not necessarily for the right reason, uh, not necessarily because of the fruit of some of those disciplines, but because of the uh, extreme nature of them. And, uh, and so we don't want to look to that alone for our spiritual guide. You know, there were saints like Catherine of Siena who had, you know, special graces where she was able to subsist on very little, and you hear of these saints able to subsist upon Holy Eucharist alone. But it's, you know, what we are to imitate there is the depth of faith and the love of God, not the specific practice. If people were to say, well, I'm only going to consume the Holy Eucharist, that will be my food, you'd have a lot of sick and dying people out there. And so we don't want to look to the extreme. And Philip Neri, our founder, even though he experienced ecstasies in his spiritual life, he never talked about them. And whenever anyone would bring them up, he said, you do not know what you sort of desire uh, or what you, you prize or value. In fact, it's a cross to receive such things. And we don't often see that aspect of these extraordinary uh, graces at times that are given to particular saints. You know, certainly thinking of some of the Western saints who bore the stigmata, you know, it's, it's easy for us at a distance to look at that and, you know, be amazed by that, or again, have our imagination stimulated by that. But I, I don't think it was such a pleasant experience for a St. Francis or a Padre Pio or other saints to bear, you know, physically on their bodies, the wounds of Christ. And so we, ha we have to show great caution here that we don't become focused upon the extraordinary. That's really not a part of the tradition. In fact, the tradition tells us to be wary of such things because of the capacity for delusion. And so they're actually dangerous for us. So we should not desire them. And if we, we should always put uh, any extraordinary experience to the test. And even Philip Neary says to reject it, you know, that there's nothing lost. At one point he says, if the Virgin Mary appears to you, spit in her face. And if, you, if it's her, she's not going to mind because you're doing the prudent and obedient thing. And if it's the evil one, he'll disappear. 
So your, your point's right on the mark. You know, I think we want to avoid the extreme. We recognize everything. This is from Barbara. We recognize that everything comes as a gift. Fasting purifies our eating. Fasting calls the hunger to, uh, for the Lord, right? Fasting deepens our sense of hope and expectation. Exactly, all of it. And we certainly see within the gospel too, you know, this hunger for the heavenly bridegroom. Uh, he, he is the bread of life. This is what our fasting is to create within us, a longing for the Lord. And so if we are fasting only to discipline the body or to lose a few pounds, it's not going to bear great fruit for us. Sam Rodriguez. Father, you made it the distinction between mortifying the bodily passions and the spiritual passions. St. John of the Cross represents that division as a progression. For example, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, it's a movement from the night of the senses, which is more bodily in our sensory engagement, to the night of the soul, leading to growth in faith, then the night of the memory, growth in hope, and the night of the will, growth in charity, is a culminating moment in the journey. Similarly, the first eight chapters of the dark night of the soul is concerned specifically with the spiritual versions of the seven deadly sins, right? Which presumably is for those who, if I'm not mistaken, have already passed through the night of the senses. If I'm wrong in giving this account, please correct me. But I'm curious whether St. John Climacus and other desert fathers would see this progressive approach as overstated that it must all be addressed simultaneously, whether the same would apply to the pursuit of the theological virtues. Excellent question. And actually, John, this is where it is important, I think, as you realize, to read the entire corpus, as well as some secondary sources on it, because I think John of the Cross is much more consistent with these Eastern writers than we typically will acknowledge. And I think because the language is often so different, uh, they are very consistent there. And I think even though John lays it out in the way that you describe as this kind of progressive movement, in fact, he describes that movement into a different stage as a ligature or break, uh, that they acknowledge that the same struggles have to carry on. The vigilance that one would be involved in in the early stages still has to persist. Uh, it's just that the passions might have less of a hold the bodily passions, for example, might have less of a hold of a person who's been engaged in the spiritual life for a longer period of time. And St. John Climacus and St. John Cassian, other Desert Fathers, are speaking the same regard. It's not as though a person progresses up this ladder and, you know, that they're done with the previous steps, you know, that, uh, that, that there's always a struggle, a watchfulness, attentiveness, that is needed. And in fact, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, as you pass like the halfway point of the book, he goes into a kind of more spiritual purification of the capital sins, like a, a, a deeper level of them. It's a, really a fascinating part of his work. So he's even acknowledging that the struggle with them is a persistent part of the spiritual life even though one is growing in grace and there's this transformation taking place, that there, it can be even says a kind of spiritual gluttony, for example, that has to be struggled, struggled with. And uh, so, you know, I think it's, you know, this is the beautiful thing about having access to all of these writings where I think some of the, uh, you know, the problems that people would often hold up about different spiritual traditions don't really exist. And the same, in a similar way, St. John of the Cross was writing for Carmelites, for goodness sake. And so for, I think he was seeing most of them as being pretty well advanced in the spiritual life. And so he was engaging them in such a way as those who have already been practicing mortification, you know, simply by living the Carmelite life itself. And so he's writing to them more about this movement towards the contemplative life, but he's assuming uh, that there's also an immersion, you know, in the, the, the struggle with the bodily passions. And so somebody even like Therese of Lisieux, who died at a very early age, you know, read, uh, for example, The Imitation of Christ, 
and had like the large, large portions of it memorized. And so she was very familiar with this kind of spiritual battle and struggle that we're talking about and that John is laying out here before us. Okay. Okay, very good. So why don't we move on just a, a little bit here in the text. Those who have really determined to serve Christ with the help of spiritual fathers in their own self-knowledge will strive before all else to choose a place and a way of life and a habitation and exercises suitable for them. For community life is not for all on account of covetousness and places of solitude are not for all on account of anger, but each will consider what is most suited to his needs. So, uh, as we'll see here, you know, that John, John Climacus, uh, maybe more so than some of the other Desert Fathers, emphasizes the communal life, uh, precisely because I think of the practice of obedience under a superior, that the salt life of solitude carries with it certain dangers. And uh, so, even if one eventually is called to the life of solitude, I think he saw uh, sort of the, the monastery as being the preschool or kindergarten, if you will, where one learned the ABCs of this, the monastic life as well as the spiritual life. And only after living it for a long period of time would one think about moving into a life of greater solitude. Uh, one of the ways that he puts forward, as we'll see in a coming paragraph, is for those who are living in smaller communities, which I think he thought was optimal, that uh, one would live with an elder with maybe a few others. Uh, and I think part of that is that this, this, the depth of the counsel given would be greater, that they would have the best of both worlds. You know, the solitude of a small community, the stillness of a small community, but still the guidance of an experienced elder. Uh, but in any case, you know, I think one has to know oneself well, and this is true for all of us, too, you know, living in the world, and as we look at our lives, and some of us have already chosen our particular paths, but we have to look at what is it that is needed in that life that is going to help us live it and embrace it fully, and uh, with holiness and desire for God, that we would see whatever path we've taken in the context of living for God and that it begins and ends with him. So a married couple, for example, I think would look at their life in a very similar way or saying, you know, what are the particular challenges here? What are we to be for each other? What should our spiritual life look like? And, you know, St. John Chrysostom says that, you know, that distinction between monk and married is doesn't mean anything when it comes to spiritual disciplines. How you live out those disciplines will vary given your station in life. But nonetheless, all these disciplines that help us struggle with the passions, uh, develop a, a kind of constancy in prayer, uh, all of these things are needed in whatever state that we live in because we all have been baptized into Christ and we're all called uh, to this life of holiness. And we're all called to die to sin and to live for God alone. And so whether living in the world or living in a monastery, we are to be listening to say what John says or any of the other fathers and thinking about, well, okay, how does this apply to my life? And I mentioned before, you know, John Chrysostom's talking about vigils and, and with children and everybody invariably rolls their eyes and smiles when I say that, that it's like the stupidest thing in the world. Uh, but, you know, par parents could get kids up, you know, if there's an eclipse at night or some special event or a movie, you know, people can stay up for all different kinds of, of things. And, you know, so I think if we're looking at our life is focused upon Christ and pursuing the life of holiness and struggling with the passions, what, what is going to have greatest value for us? You know, what is the context that's the, through which we are going to look at our life and the spiritual disciplines that we bring to it? And we have to have, I think, a clarity. This, 
it seems like a small, maybe insignificant paragraph, but I think in our day and age, we have to have an even greater clarity about this because the world around us is so powerful in regards to its influence, more powerful than ever in terms of what we are exposed to, even our senses. You know, we've talked before about being in this constant state of receptivity as human beings. You know, our, we're constantly uh, exposed to the world around us and we're receiving all of this input from uh, what we are exposed to. And what do we do with that? And how do we evaluate that? And do we, how do we evaluate it in terms of our relationship with God or our living out of the gospel? Do we simply uh, immerse ourselves in the culture around us or do we examine it? Are we discriminating uh, in such a way that we are able to see those things that would bear fruit for us spiritually or those things that would tear us, tear us down? that would expose ourselves to sin. And I, I think in our day, we have to be radically honest about that, you know, that we shine a light on uh, maybe even things that we've participated in for decades in our life. And this is a hard thing because even, you know, I've been in a, the oratory now, this is my 35th year. And, uh, you know, I was formed in the culture, you know, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and lived, you know, the typical college guy life, but, you know, have been surrounded by the university culture, but just the culture as a whole. And even with seminary, there wasn't this emergent, immersion in the ascetic life or a consistent teaching about the ascetic life. It was only after, you know, passing through the novitiate, passing through seminary and, facing the reality of life as a priest and then providentially being given the ascetical text that I began to see, oh my goodness, I could have used this 15 years ago back then, you know, or I could have used these writings, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, when I was a young man and then picking them up in my twenties uh, and then seeing this is essential for living out that life. And, you know, God, you know, you remember John Climacus saying that he, in the beginning of the spiritual life with novices, he only allows them to see so much about the spiritual life. And on some level, he provides the grace to make it easier for them to be consistent in their practice of the ascetical life. It's only later that he allows them to see just how embattled we are. He said, otherwise, nobody would renounce the world, nobody would renounce anything. And so, and in a way, Jeremiah was right. You, you duped me, oh God, and I allowed myself to be duped because as we enter into the spiritual life, God reveals more to us, you know, about that spiritual battle. But, you know, I felt, you know, I think as so many people feel when they come to college, wholly unprepared. Like high school doesn't prepare you for college and seminary doesn't prepare you for the priesthood. And certainly CCD doesn't prepare you for anything, you know, in terms of living out the Catholic life. I think pretty much everybody's in agreement about that these days. So where, where do we begin? And, you know, I think it's, you know, as adults, we have to embrace it. Parents have to learn the spiritual tradition and bring, gradually bring it into their family, that these become essential elements, not only the cultural aspects of the faith life, but I think it has to be the practice of living the faith life that is incorporated as something that shapes the identity. You know, that we're more than willing to embrace the things that come from our particular cultures surrounding, you know, the holy seasons and things such as that, but we're less willing to embrace the disciplines of the faith. And we want those to be essential for us as well. Rob and Greco. Do you think that's why we don't really have many saints today? Well, this is a tricky question. Uh, I, th I think this is why we do not have many elders today, yes. And, you know, we see some saints even in, in John Climacus's time. And as we look through history, it's often lamented the lack of elders you know, those who are living this fully. And even John says here in our generation, we find very few that are really willing to mortify the flesh in the way that they should. 
I think we live in a day and age where that is sorely lacking. Uh, but we've talked a little bit before about God making up for a void that can exist within the life of the church. And certainly as a priest, I've seen many saintly figures. Uh, they're hidden from the world and they don't gain the attention that, you know, those who fall away from the faith gain. Uh, and they're often living the faith life in a very deep way, immersed in the sacramental life, life of prayer, engaging in the ascetical life, or dealing with very heavy crosses, uh, chronic illnesses, chronic pain, and, and living it heroically or serving others heroically. You know, we know of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, but there are many Mother Teresas of Calcutta who do the same work as she does. Uh, in India, too, uh, there's a, a Catholic gentleman who uh, grew up in India and go uh, and had come here to study at the University of Pittsburgh. And he was very clear about that, that she's not certainly the only one who cared for people in the way uh, who care people in a way that she did. And so I think God is always at work in his providence and uh, we're, you know, St. Paul says we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so, you know, our confidence should be in him. And I think in what he's doing and as dark as things might become, it's often out of this darkness that great saints emerge. And we saw this in Philip Neary's time, counter-reformation, you know, this flowering of sanctity that took place. Uh, Teresa of Avila was from his time, Ignatius of Loyola, Camillus de Lellis, the Borromeos, you know, that you have all these great saints emerge at the same time, but out of a similar cultural reality, corruption within the life of the church, you know, uh, just, you know, distortions on so many different levels. So, you know, I think we're called to place our hope in the grace of God, uh, especially at times like this, that he's not going to abandon abandon us. I think he's given us so much. I think Ambrose brought this up in the Evergatinos group on Monday, that, you know, we have the teachings of the church throughout the centuries, the councils, the scriptures, access to the writings of the fathers as never before. Uh, and so there's so much that God has given us that, you know, that helps, that, that is available and that can nourish us and we have to take hold of it. Ambrose Little writes, it takes time for canonizations to happen usually. There are very many processes in progress. The Vatican office that handles this has more than it can handle and quite regular canonizations of folks even in the last 60 years. And that's just the, the recognized ones. Absolutely, that's true. And you know, they're uh, certainly martyrs for the faith in our own day too. You know, I think we live in this kind of blissful ignorance in the West too, because we're so often, even when we hear about it, we're often untouched by it in reality, you know, in terms of living and persecution. I had the good fortune to go to Egypt at one time. And when you see people who live in an environment where they are this extreme minority and they are persecuted, and you see the depth of their faith, then, uh, then you know there are saints, whether canonized or not. And there are large portions of the world where Christians are afflicted on a daily basis and a number of martyrs here being mentioned and saints beatified here in, in, the, in the chat section. Okay, it's a great question. All right, uh, number 26. The whole monastic state consists in three specific established kinds of establishment, either the retired in solitude of a spiritual athlete or living in stillness with one or two others or settling patiently in a community. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left, but follow the king's highway. Of the three ways of life mentioned above, the second is suitable for many people. For it is said, woe to him who is alone when he falls into despondency or lethargy or laziness or despair and has no one among men to lift him up. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, 
said the Lord. So, you know, what he's saying here is that, you know, there, there are these three states and there's something about this middle state that is very powerful because you do have that counsel that's given, you have the support of others, but there isn't what you see in communal life, which is a kind of uh, covetousness he talks about. You know, the communities require a lot more to function and to, to exist on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there can exist uh, in this community, you know, people, you know, seeking for themselves what others have or in one way or another, or pride of place within a community can begin to exist or emerge too. You know, this uh, um, emotional, or I'm sorry, this uh, kind of positioning of oneself in regards to power within the, within the community uh, can begin to take place too. Or if one is on one's own, Again, you know, falling into despondency or being driven by anger into a kind of, of madness that it's kind of curious, you know, Cassian talks about this, you know, about how the passions will follow one into the desert. And that if there isn't a person to get angry about, you know, the monks would find themselves getting angry at a piece of wood that gets in their way or is in, inconveniently positioned. And so, you know, left alone uh, in the desert, one can fall into a kind of deep sadness or depression or just be uh, overwhelmed by one of the passions or anger and so fall into a kind of madness. And we heard about that too in the Evergetinos, you know, just how deep the delusion could, could become where an individual separated himself from the community, no longer participating in the holy mysteries no longer receiving Holy Communion and thinking himself above the teachings of the elders. So, you know, it's a shame. We, we don't hear too much uh, about these smaller communities that these, you know, in the East certainly still exist uh, and often are given the name Skeet, uh, you know, that it would be these smaller communities. And, uh, there are some here in, in the West, uh, but uh, unfortunately you don't hear too much spoken of them and they're not fostered too often, nor, nor really is the life of an anchorite or a hermit fostered too much too, which I think impoverishes the church as well. I think the church put back into canon law that you know, someone can become, living in the world, a layperson can become a consecrated hermit living within the world. They could create a role and they can be, you know, consecrate themselves, live under obedience to the bishop uh, and, and live in a diocese. And so it's holding up this way of life for the church as, as a, a possible path to sanctity. And yet I think in the West, we are, you know, wholly unaware of that. And even the religious communities that we've had, I think, have really shrunk down in measure in terms of people being aware of them or being exposed to them any longer. Was, there was a time when I think people were exposed to a lot of religious in their parishes or uh, were a neighboring monastery, you know, where they would come into contact with monks or nuns. Uh, not so much anymore, unfortunately. Pittsburgh was a hub. I mean, we had enormous mother houses that are sadly, for the most part, empty now. And most of the men's religious communities have moved out of the diocese at one point or another. So, so you're following here what he says in 26 and why he values that, that king's highway, as he calls it. All right. One final thought. So who is a faithful and wise monk? He who has kept his fervor unabated and to the end of his life has not ceased daily to add fire to fire, fervor to fervor, zeal to zeal. This is the first step. Let him who has mounted it not turn back. So, you know, this is what John often does at the end of every step. He summarizes just with a sentence or two what he had been seeking to capture in the rest of the uh, writing. And so 
he simplifies the view for us here that the, the this path is taken in order that fervor might be unabated that one might be able to maintain this consistency of desire for God throughout the course of one's life. And in fact, add fervor to fervor, fire to fire, zeal to zeal, and finally love to love. And so ultimately the renunciation is not simply a turning away from the world, but more importantly, a, a turning toward God. It's rooted again in desire. And this is one of the things I think that we often don't see in the Desert Fathers. Again, this language of desire that's at the heart of their life. All of this is done, all of these disciplines embraced are embraced for the love of God and to give oneself to him in love. So any final thoughts or comments here? Andrea and Anthony. What is meant by this? It sounds like relying on emotions, which are passing. Many times the fire and fervor are just not felt. Uh, that's true, you know, and I think again, you know, John is trying to summarize, you know, the focus of choosing this path, what is behind it. Uh, while acknowledging, as we, certainly we will see in his other steps, that that can be fraught with certain difficulties. And certainly John isn't holding up emotion as a guiding principle in the spiritual life. Uh, I think what he's saying here, again, or emphasizing for us here in the, these last couple of sentences, is that we want to enter into the spiritual struggle as we're making that choice to turn toward God that we do it with a kind of zeal and deep love for him, and that we keep, seek, we keep striving to deepen that love as we enter into it, and that fervor in order that it might sustain us throughout the whole course of our life. Because I think all of us here know that we can, at times, either through negligence or laziness or hardship, lose that fervor. We could grow lukewarm. And so establishing a zeal for the Lord right from the beginning can help carry us through those difficult moments when there is no consolation for us in the spiritual life. And it is love, not as the feeling or emotion, but this, this desire for God, you know, our, our, our clear sense that our lives are incomplete outside of that relationship that keeps us moving forward. And so he wants us to establish that with great clarity. Ponder well, you know, what, what you are about to do in seeking to climb this ladder. So it's sort of like Christ in the gospel saying, you know, count, count the cost. You know, if you're coming up against a, an enemy with this bigger army, or you want to make sure that you have all that is necessary to engage the reality before you or if you're building something to make sure that you have all that is needed. And similarly here, you know, what is needed most of all is this love and desire for God. And we want to get that flame burning brightly in order to sustain us throughout the, the difficult spiritual journey. Ren Witter. I don't understand the second to last sentence in paragraph 24, for you will scarcely find anyone who's determined to mortify his flesh, although he might deprive himself of many pleasant dishes. Could you explain this a little more? Yes. How is this form of deprivation not a good example of mortification? Well, I think he's, you know, that there are some who are willing to abstain, uh, say from certain pleasant dishes, you know, those that are rich, extravagant, and this can be an important thing in the spiritual life, you know, this kind of abstinence from certain foods. And we've heard Cassian talk about this, that they're, you know, in eating rich foods, we weigh ourselves down to the point uh, that it becomes very difficult to pray with any depth. Uh, but I think what Climacus uh, is saying here is that there are those who are willing to abstain, but to really fast and mortify oneself in fuller measure 
and with irregularity, not so much. You know, in the sense of the regular fast that they would have embraced too, which was a daily fast where they would fast for a 24 hour period. They would have that late afternoon meal. They would not eat again until and break the fast until the same time the next day. Uh, that, you know, there are a few that were, were willing to embrace this discipline and to have that become a regular practice in, or, in order really to mortify themselves in such a sense that their prayer might really become very strong, that that hunger, that desire for God would be manifested and seen within their own bodily desire for food, that with that, their hunger on a bodily level would be so connected then with this desire for God and what he alone can uh, uh, nourish us upon, that the this becomes so deeply rooted that the prayer at the end of the fast, before the end of the fast, becomes its strongest. When we've humbled the mind and the body throughout this period of time, that prayer becomes deeper and deeper throughout the course of the day. And this is a practice, this is an experience and practice that is only, uh, that one only sees the fruit of after many years, perhaps decades of engaging in it. And who is willing to embrace this kind of discipline and wait 10, 20 years to see the full fruit of it within their life. So desire God and so take hold of the, the wisdom of the elders that they're willing to embrace it. And I think he's saying, you know, there are plenty who are willing to fast in this particular way that requires less of oneself, but there are few perhaps that have this extraordinary hunger and desire for God that they're willing to mortify the flesh on that level. And that's the interesting thing about Adelbert de Vogue's book, To Love Fasting, because he's saying, you know, he lays out for people how he embraced the regular fast and how even modern monasticism works against the practice of the regular fast. He says, every monastery you go into has three days, three meals a day with multiple selections of food to eat and a refractory that is open that you can go in any time of the day. And he says, you know, what kind of fasting is that going to foster over the course of time? And, uh, and so he goes back and he embraces he, you know, reads the father's tradition of practicing the regular fast, but then embraces it over the course of years. And he lays out really beautifully what takes place on a physiological level, but also on a spiritual level, the pitfalls that one can run into uh, uh, and how the practice even changes and develops over the course of years. And he shows that how one is not weakened by that, even on a physical level. Again, we've been formed in a culture that looks at eating in this particular way, disconnected from the spiritual life. And so it requires from us a willingness to suspend judgment and to suspend all that we know about eating and to root ourselves in the gospel, in our understanding of Christ giving himself to us as our very food and drink, but also is that the spiritual life is being rooted in desire, hunger for God, and how it is that we foster that uh, in order to, I think, really re recapture not only an understanding of fasting, but to em embrace it desire and come to know the joy of it. And so it would take generations, I think, of individuals practicing it in order for it to emerge once again within this the spiritual and the ascetical life of the church. There is an article uh, uh, on uh, this uh, to love fasting written by DeVogue that I think you can find online. I don't know if that's what somebody posted there. Uh, so it sort of uh, summarizes his book, uh, but the, he, he did write a whole book that really lays it out beautifully. So 
we made it through the first step, everybody. So congratulations, <laughs> yay. Uh, but it's, you begin to see how beautiful a writer John is and, and how clear of a thinker he is. He sets up his fun, fun, fundamental principle that he's laying out, whatever virtue or vice that we're seeking to uh, overcome or embrace. He defines it how, and then shows us through these various examples, how it manifests itself, what it looks like, and then sort of wraps it up for us at the very end. Uh, and so in this sense, he's the best of teachers because he helps us circle around these things over and over again in order that we might see all these different facets of either the practices or the vices uh, that we, we need to see. So Anthony, final, final question for the night. Yet food is art. Well, there's always one of you guys in there, <laughs> you Italians. Okay, food is art. It is true, good and beautiful. There is natural law associated with food. We don't whitewash walls like Puritans do, right? Well, perhaps Carthusians do, which is very true. They do that. Uh, but we have and celebrate iconic, uh, icon, iconography. Judicious use of God's gifts with more, within mortification is important. Beautiful material art can degenerate into kitsch. Beautiful food can degenerate into sumptuousness. But we love icons and we love food, both made and appreciated judiciously for natural law and spiritual law. Wow, you guys are incredible. You're getting better with every single group. Uh, because I would never have expected to go into it in this way, but you're right. Uh, absolutely. And this is why, you know, we have certain penitential seasons and we have feasts where we break the fast in order to be able to celebrate and to make use of what is good in order to be able to do that and so we break the fast uh in order you know on sunday to celebrate the resurrection but then certainly for the octave of easter we celebrate easter for eight days straight and then we have the easter season as well where our disciplines are 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 lightened uh, St. Bruno, the founder of the Carthusians uh, that you mentioned here, you know, also said, you know, that we can't keep the bow taut constantly, otherwise we will destroy it. You have to relax the bow from time to time. And so looking at the ascetical life, uh, I think he's saying sort of what you're saying here, that there's a distortion in keeping that bow tight altogether, because it you know, we, we are, we lose sight of the beauty of what is around us, that our asceticism shouldn't uh, darken our view of these things that you mentioned. In fact, it should make us appreciate them because we, what develops is purity of heart uh, and a clarity of vision that allows us to see that which is good, beautiful, and true with, with a greater clarity. And so, if there is a kind of negativity or a hatred of these things, like if fasting brings uh, us to the Puritan position, you know, then I, uh, I think we have a problem there that needs to be addressed. A great example of this, if you've never seen uh, the movie, is Babette's Feast. Uh, you know, the French chef who you know, flees for her life during the Re revolution, comes to this little, we're a country, I can't remember uh, where she had come to, but she becomes like a handmaid to these uh, two uh, Puritan ladies. And she wins the lottery in France and she gets all this money and out of gratitude for their caring for her and taking her in, she asked them for the permission to make them a genuine French meal. And the, the beauty of the movie is, is it, it shows you the, how the Puritan mindset had distorted their perception of reality and also broke down their relationships, their capacity to see the good in anything, but also in each other. And it's in the course of this like 12 course meal that she prepares for them, that you see this transformation take place within them. They develop this capacity to engage each other with a kind of lightness, and they reconcile with each other. 
And so exactly what Anthony describes in his con and his comment takes place in this movie. So if you have the opportunity to, to watch it, it's one of the few movies I would, would recommend. And it's just beautifully, beautifully done. Very Eucharistic, certainly in his theme, but I think it capture, the movie captures exactly what Anthony is talking about here. Great way to end it. Thanks for the final comment there, Anthony. Is superb. Okay, folks. So, won't we stop there for tonight? And uh, we'll close as always with uh, our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. With your spirit. God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go on. Amen.